Gospel of Matthew. I'm aware that I'm a little bit taller than you, so I might be getting in your way here, but um, that's a good reason to bring your own Bibles to the church. But my, so, so Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to read from verse 23. We're going to spend most of our time this morning considering the parable in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20, but in order to set the context, we do need to go back and consider these verses in Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, where we're told, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my sake will receive a hundredfold. And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. He sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said. You go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And in about the eleventh hour, he went out and found the others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first last. Well, If you have your Bibles with you, can you have them open, please, to the passage you've just read? And then let's just now ask the Lord's help as we consider his word. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. Great God and Lord of all, we come to this passage knowing that this is your word. This is not the mere advice of men, but your truth 
that is here to make us wise unto salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal God, in mercy, we ask, therefore, that you would open to us your word, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us know the truth about you and ourselves. And in knowing the truth, Lord, let us be changed by the power of your gospel. And so then, Lord, I do ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, please may he come and may he help me to be true to the text and true to Jesus Christ. For I ask all this in his precious and worthy name. Amen. In 2015, there was a large conference held in Australia that included a question and answer session. This particular session was televised and it was run very much like our own political TV programs. So the panel was properly chaired. On the panel were various figures from the world of entertainment and politics and news. And the idea was that they would have to answer the questions that were given to them by the audience. One of the questions they had to deal with was this. What so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Let me repeat that. What so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Now, some of the panel were a bit unsure of what to make of that, but the chairman took the question and began to look for answers. The answer of one of them was population control. In a half-joking way, one panelist said, well, there are just too many people on the planet, and therefore something needs to be done. And then he made the rather nasty comment that he would enforce abortion for anyone under 30 years old. That was the answer from the panelist that was meant to represent the left wing of politics. Well, having spoken to the left wing panelist, the chairman then turned to Peter Hitchens. No doubt he was there to represent a different political view, but he surprised everyone by giving a short and rather matter-of-fact answer. For he said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. And that, he said, is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. The chairman reacted and said, hang on, You just can't leave it there. Why do you say that idea is so dangerous? To which Hitchens replied, it's dangerous because it alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. It alters us all, he said. Even if we reject it, it alters us. It is incredibly dangerous, which is why so many people turn against it. Well, if you want, you can go and search for the clip yourself on YouTube and see the response that he got. But of course, in saying what he did, Hitchens was seeking to push back against a very popular idea of who Jesus was and why he came. Because one of the great tragedies of our time is that so many people have a domesticated view of Jesus. They believe in a Jesus that is safe. They believe in a Jesus that that can be contained. and And they believe in a Jesus that looks remarkably like ourselves, except that he pushes us a little bit to be a bit better than we currently are. But that, of course, is a million miles away from the historical Jesus we encounter in the pages of Scripture. Because there we encounter this remarkable figure who is God's savior for this needy and fallen world. 
And you know, the more you read about this Jesus, the more you find that Hitchens might just be right. For his ideas are dangerous, and his teaching does shock, challenge, and surprise those around him. Yes, he shocked and challenged the political and religious establishment of the day, but he did the same to his most committed of followers. As you read the gospel accounts, you constantly find Jesus undermining the accepted orthodoxy and challenging his disciples to think differently. That happens when Jesus speaks about his mission to the world and why he has come. It happens when he speaks about who he has come for. And it happens when he teaches his disciples what following him will look like and therefore what type of people they should be. All the way through the gospel accounts, we have this different and unsettling ideas. And as we consider the parable we've just read this morning, we have the exact same thing. Here Jesus is challenging his most committed of disciples with God's grace. And he is showing them how God's grace forces them to think differently about themselves and the people they encounter each and every day of their lives. I hope we're going to see that as we consider this parable. But as is so often the case, to really understand that and to really grasp hold of what is going on, we need to go back and look at the context. And when we do that, we can see that this parable is directly related to the disciples' response of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. You remember that encounter, don't you? Here was a young man who came to the right person with the right question and the right attitude, and yet he ends up walking away sorrowful because we are told he had great possessions. And in response to this, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples something about the things of God and the dangers of material wealth and how that can be actually a hindrance in the things of God. Now, once again, that went against the grain because the generally accepted view was that being rich was a great blessing. But again, Jesus challenges that view when he says, actually, having wealth and material possessions can be a great hindrance to spiritual matters. Which caused Peter to ask a very honest question in chapter 19, verse 27. Look at it with me. For there, Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And then look at what he asks. He asks, what then will we have? Now, you'll be pleased to know I don't intend to give an in-depth explanation of everything Jesus says here. But the basic answer comes in two parts. The first part is found in the rest of chapter 19, where his basic answer to Peter is, you have made the right choice. Yes, you've left everything. Yes, following me has cost you something. There's no denying that. But put simply, Jesus says, God is no man's debtor. He says, there is no one who will ever outgive God. There is no one who on the last day of judgment will come to the conclusion it wasn't worth being a Christian. That the cost was too much and the blessings were too little. That's never going to happen because God is no man's debtor. But there's a second part to Jesus' answer. For after reassuring Peter, Jesus now comes with a huge warning and challenge to his followers. And that huge challenge comes in the form of the parable in chapter 20. For you see, there is the danger that Peter's thinking is very wrong. There is the danger that Peter and the rest of the disciples will begin to have a spiritual tit-for-tat view of their relationship with God. 
but they'll believe God blesses them according to their deeds. And all these incredible privileges he's spoken of is directly related to their performance and their decision to follow Christ. And that is a very real danger. Because when that happens, what do we have? Well, we have pride. We have arrogance. And we have some looking down their noses at others because they have done more, they have sacrificed more, or they simply have become, been followers for longer. And so to guard against this dangerous thinking, Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And I hope you can see how the text itself shows us that this parable is directly related to the conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. So yes, we have the unhelpful chapter break, Uh, in those verses, but then look at how verse 1 begins. It begins with the word for, which connects the parable he's about to tell us with what's going on in chapter 19. Also, look how chapter 19 finishes. There we're told that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But then look how the parable finishes in verse 16 of chapter 20. And there we're told, so the last will be first and the first will be last. You see, there's an obvious connection being made here between the parable and the conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. For here Jesus is talking directly to his own people. And as he does so, he's warning them and he's challenging them with God's amazing grace. So, having got the context right in our mind, let's now look at this parable. And as we do so, the first thing I want you to see is the generous master. The first thing that I think just leaps out of this parable is the generous generous master. Again, I don't intend to go through all the details. We've read it together and it's fairly easy to follow. But basically what we have here is a scene very typical in the days of the Bible. Just as we have unemployment agencies today, so in the first century there are laborers, there are places that laborers would gather as they looked for work. These these workers were probably unskilled, and so they were at the bottom of the pile. However, there were times during the year when extra workers were needed on the farms and in the vineyards. And so what we have here is the master going out first thing in the morning, and he hires some workers for the day. And the agreed wage for a day's work is a denarius, which actually is a fairly generous wage. It was the equivalent of a Roman soldier's daily pay, so it was not insubstantial which means the first set of workers gladly agree to the conditions and off they go to the vineyard. But then as we read on, we find the master goes out again at about 9 a.m. and he hires more workers. This time, did you note, he doesn't mention a wage. Instead, he just says, I will pay you what is right. He does the same thing at noon. He goes out again at 3. And then most strangely of all, he goes out and looks for workers at 5 p.m., which is the, just one hour before the working day finishes. And as you can imagine, in that last hour, there's not going to be a whole heap of work done. But nevertheless, the master goes out and he hires those who have been standing idle all day. We're not told why he's done that, because really it makes no economic sense at all. But nevertheless, that is what has happened. He keeps going to the marketplace. He keeps seeing people looking for work. And he keeps hiring them. And then comes the end of the day. And of course, those 11th hour workers do not deserve a full day's pay. I mean, at the most, they work for one hour. So they're definitely not expecting a full day's pay. But at least they're going to get something. 
And you know what? That was incredibly important back then because back then you were paid by the day and what you got paid by the day determined whether your family would eat or not. Remember back then there was no social security system. Instead it was all down to you. And no doubt as those 11th hour men stood in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them, they would have thought that they had failed. They would have thought of their family, of what their children were going to eat, of what their wives were going to uh, say to them when they got home. And therefore, you can imagine the joy and just the relief of, get, of getting something at the 11th hour. Yes, it wasn't a full day's pay, but it was something. And then just imagine the sheer delight that comes in verse 9. When unbelievably, the master gives them a full denarius. Can you imagine the joy and relief that comes with that decision? Those workers didn't deserve it. They hadn't earned it. They had no right to it. Instead, these and the other laborers that only worked part of the day is a beneficiary of the undeserved generosity of this wonderful master. And we do see that, don't we? We see that the incredible generosity of the master is one of the major themes of this whole parable. So as we said in chapter 19, verse 30, we're told the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Throughout the parable, the master keeps going back and hiring people and giving them a wage, even when it makes no sense. In verse 9, these laborers who deserve so little was given way beyond what they should have got. In verse 16 of chapter 20, we're told the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And then just in case we're in any doubt at all, the master asks the question in verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? It's obvious this whole parable is shot through with the kindness, the generosity, and the graciousness of the Master. And that, says Jesus, is what the kingdom of God is like. That is what God is like. And therefore the question I've got to ask at this point is, do you really understand that? Now, of course, most of you are going to say, yeah, yeah, of course, I know about God's grace. But, you know, I think this whole issue of grace and undeserved generosity is really difficult for us to get a hold of because it's so alien to what we encounter virtually every day of our lives. Because what have we been brought up with? We've been brought up with the doctrine of just desserts. We've been brought up with the idea you get what you earn. That hard work pays and brings its own rewards. And when you think about it, we're taught that from the very moment we go to school. So when my kids were younger, what happened in primary school? They got stickers and stamps and rewards based on their behavior. As they got older and went into secondary school, you get good conduct assemblies and house points and reward trips that some pupils can go on and other pupils can't. And then when you leave school, you find the same thing happening. For most jobs have appraisals where you're assessed. And many positions have performance-related bonuses. Because throughout our whole lives, we're told in all sorts of ways, you get what you deserve and you earn your own rewards. But friends, this parable reminds us God simply does not operate like that. Instead, with God, there is grace, there is mercy, and there is undeserved generosity. He does not treat us as we deserve. Instead, throughout the Bible, we're told in Christ, He freely forgives the sinner. 
In Christ, He heals the brokenhearted. In Christ, because of His work on the cross, He wonderfully restores the prodigal. God is different. And that's the exact point Jesus is making as He speaks of a master who showed His wonderful generosity in extraordinary ways. What should that mean for us? Well, friends, let me begin by speaking to those of you who maybe here who are not yet Christians. Can I say to you, please, please, please understand the type of God we're dealing with here. I don't know your background, and therefore I don't know what may have shaped your understanding of God and your beliefs about Him. I also don't know what you may have done in the past. But the truth of the matter is, we all have skeletons in the cupboard. We all have done things that we're ashamed of, and the Bible tells us we have all fallen short of God's perfect law. In thought and word and deed, every single one of us has failed. And yet here's the thing. The Bible says that while we rightly deserve God's judgment, in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is the removal of guilt and the transformation of our lives. In Christ we can be restored to the relationship with God we were always created for. And that restoration brings meaning and purpose in this life, and it brings hope and certainty in the life to come. And get this, because of God's astonishing generosity, we can receive all of these incredible blessings as a gift when we trust in Christ and depend completely on what He has done for us. Please do not think the Bible's message to you is try hard to be a bit better. Please do not think God's message to the world is turn over a new leaf. Instead, this generous, gracious, and good God says to us all, we deserve His judgment, but we can receive His mercy. We deserve His anger, but we can experience His love. We deserve eternal condemnation, but we can enjoy forgiveness, blessing, and hope as we receive this wonderful gift of salvation. We have nothing to offer Him, but through faith in Christ God offers to us all that we will ever need. And so, friends, with that in mind, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, can I say to you, is it not time that you were? Is it not time that you take God at His word? And is it not time that you come and know for yourself the generosity and blessings of this incredible Savior? And then as I highlight how this parable speaks of the generosity of God, I think I also need to say a word to some Christians. Now, in a moment, we will see how this parable challenges the committed and therefore challenges many of us who are Christians. But at this point, I want to highlight the generosity of God as an important truth that some believers really do need to remember. Because you know there are some Christians who think they're only in a relationship with God by the skin of their teeth. So they look around at others And they see what appears to be these super-Christians who have been followers of Jesus for much longer. They hear them talk, and they realize others know a lot more about the faith than they do. They look around them, and it seems other Christians are doing more for God. And indeed, it seems these super-Christians have got it all worked out. While they themselves have a whole lot more trouble. And they conclude with all their struggles, if if they are a Christian at all, They're only a Christian by the skin of their teeth. But brothers or sisters in Christ, 
If that's you, can I gently and lovingly say to you, stop it. Stop it. Stop basing your relationship with God on your performance. Stop thinking you have to earn God's favor. Stop believing the lie from the pit of hell that God is constantly disappointed in you and instead look at this parable and be confronted again with the grace of God. And as you do so, please keep in your mind this wonderful picture of the master slapping down on the table a full day's pay for workers who don't deserve it. Friends, that's our God. In Christ, he has wonderfully and willingly provided for our every need. And incredibly, he loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And he welcomes you and me into his kingdom because of his abundant generosity and grace. So please, do not let wrong thinking rob you of God's richest blessing. You are his because of Christ. And in Christ, nothing can separate you from this God who has done so much for you. So then as we've looked at this parable, we've considered the generous master and what that means. The second, and I'm sure you'll be glad to know, final point I want you to see is the grumbling laborers. As we go on through the parable, we can't miss the grumbling later. So how do you think the first workers reacted to this act of generosity? Do you think they applauded the master for his kindness? No, of course not. As the master began with the 11th hour workers and gave them a denarius, you can imagine them thinking, hang on, we could be in for a real pay deal here. If he's given them these workers a denarius, what on earth are we going to get? And then when they find out they're going to get exactly what was agreed, well, then the complaints start. The whinging grew. And the sense of injustice began to form in their own mind. And we can see that when we look at verse 11, because look there, and there we're told, and on receiving it, that is the denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, if we're being completely honest, many of us are probably have a bit of sympathy with these men. Even though we know where this is going, many of us still have a sneaking suspicion we would have reacted in exactly the same way, which should be rather unsettling to us because it shows us we're on the opposite side of Jesus and therefore we're maybe not as grace-filled as we think that we are. But yet I suppose that's the whole point of the parable. It's meant to make us uncomfortable. The sting in the tail is meant to upset us. And it's meant to show us God's ways are not our ways. Because what should have been the reaction of these first workers? If they truly understood the character of God and what life in his kingdom was really like, what should they have said when these 11th hour men received a full day's pay? Well, they should have said, wow, he's done it again. They should have said, I can't believe it. He's been gracious and kind to me. But now look at his incredible generosity to others. It's simply amazing. And what a magnificent master we have. But that's not what happened. Instead, what happens is they complain. 
what happens is they say, I've borne the heat of the day. I've done more work than them. I've been here all day. And therefore, because of what I have done, I deserve more. How dare you make them equal with us? It's just not fair. And they're right. It isn't fair. But the point of the parable is to remind us that words like fairness and entitlement and worth should never be part of our conversation when we're dealing with our relationship with God. Instead, the words that should really matter are grace and mercy and astonishing undeserved love. And yet it's amazing how often we forget that, isn't it? It's amazing how quickly we slip back into the old ways as we think that somehow we can earn God's favor and deserve his blessing. And friends, when I say we, I mean we. I mean the committed followers of Jesus. Because as we said here, Jesus is not talking here to the Pharisees. He's not warning the Pharisees of a mercenary spirit. No, he's warning his dedicated followers who have left everything to follow him. He's warning his disciples and closest followers. And he's saying, yeah, you might have left everything. But if you ever get to the point of saying to yourself, I've earned my place in the kingdom. I deserve to be there. Then you're in all sorts of trouble. Because you have totally lost sight of the concept of grace. And it's grace which is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, I know we would all agree that grace is central to the Christian life. Nobody here is going to disagree with that. And some of you may think it's even rather ridiculous to even suggest that we would lose sight of grace. After all, we're good, solid evangelical believers. We know our Bibles. We can define grace at at a drop of a hat. We sing about it all the time. So, of course, we're not going to forget about grace. And yet sometimes we do, don't we? Sometimes we begin to relate to God in some very unhealthy and sinful ways. So, for example, we try and enter into deals and bargains with God where we say, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do that. Or we might start to become jealous or resentful of what God is doing in other people's lives. So just like these workers, it doesn't seem fair to us that others are blessed and we are not, even though we've done so much and served so faithfully. And of course, we also know there can be the problem of pride where we start to think because of our knowledge or our service or our talents and achievements or just simply because of the length of time we've been Christians that somehow we deserve greater recognition or higher honor than we're actually receiving. These and so many other attitudes are warning signs that committed followers have moved away from God's grace. And instead, they're relating to God in the exact same way as the workers in this parable. And yet that is an utter tragedy. It's tragic for us because such an attitude will cause all sorts of problems. But it's also a terrible tragedy for the world. For friends, this world needs people of grace. I don't know why, but on my recent trips abroad, and then when I've come home and listened to the news, I've been reminded like never before that this world is a dog-eat-dog environment. It's a place where we are judged in our performance or our looks or our wealth. It is a place for the strong and the powerful. And as a result, this world can be a horrible and cruel and selfish place. But yet into that environment, God has placed his people. And they or should I say we, are meant to be different. 
We're meant to live out the values and principles of the kingdom of God. And in doing so by our words and our deeds, we're meant to point others to the grace and mercy of God that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if our attitudes are wrong, if pride has crept in, and if we've slipped back into our old ways, then we're simply not fulfilling the calling that our great God has given us. And so, Christian friend, can I remind you of what you've heard many times before? And that is, none of us deserve anything from God. None of us are worthy of any of His blessing and favor. Instead, all of us are utterly dependent on God's grace from beginning to end. And if we get that, if we really get that, then it will change us. It will mean we will rejoice in God's amazing mercy and undeserved generosity. And as we do so, it will mean we'll be able to point a watching world to a Jesus that can wonderfully transform lives. And so, friends, as we come to the end of this passage, where Jesus felt it necessary to challenge his followers with God's grace, can I just encourage you to think deeply in what we've been told here? We've been confronted again with the wonderful truth that God is a God of mercy and of extraordinary generosity. And that's how we're meant to relate to him. As his people, that's what we're always to depend upon, which means we must never fall for the old lie that somehow we earn God's favor or we deserve his blessing. Instead, we must understand it's all of grace. The whole of the Christian life is all about grace. Friends, we need to remember that because let me repeat. This world needs people of grace. And so with God's power, let's be such people. With God's Spirit, let's learn to enjoy His incredible mercy. And as we do so, let's make sure we're showing a watching world that God's kingdom really is different to everything else. Well, with those words in mind, let's turn to our final hymn. And I was thinking about what hymn to to sing. And well, we're going to sing an old hymn, but a well-known hymn, Amazing Grace.